Morning, everyone. Welcome to Restoration. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be worshiping with you all this morning, uh, whether you're here in person with us or whether you're watching with us online. If you're a longtime member or you're visiting with us, thanks for uh, being with us this morning. Um, so this morning's going to be a little bit different, as Pastor Dan mentioned <laughs> last night. He reached out and said, my house is flooding. I am not in a good uh, mental space. Would you preach in the morning? And I said, sure, I'll preach in the morning. So we're breaking from our series in Acts uh, to go to uh, a sermon that I've enjoyed preaching, not here before, but at some other places, um, of one of my favorite verses in the Bible, actually. So uh, we have an opportunity again to break from our normal series in Acts. We'll pick that up uh, next week. But this morning we're going to look at a very simple verse. Many of you probably know it. It's in Revelation chapter 21. It's on page 1041 of the pew bible if you want to turn there but again i'll read the verse for us it's pretty simple verse five and this is actually a verse that i find myself uh, turning to uh, quite often in life actually regardless of the season uh, of life that i'm in whether it's a difficult season or whether it's a very comfortable season uh, this is a verse that i find myself coming back to in fact the whole book of revelation is a little bit like that. It's actually a very fitting book uh, to end the Bible with because it speaks to us about the end of things, about what things are going to be like in the future, but it does that in a way that really meets us where we're at in the present. That's the case with this particular verse 5. It's the case with the book as a whole, but I want us to think about that this morning. How does this verse meet you where you are this morning? This is what Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now for context, the person seated on the throne, no surprise, is Jesus. He's speaking to the apostle John, the author of the book of Revelation. John has followed for 20 chapters these events that are going to be symbols of the end of times coming. And they've culminated here in chapter 21 with the coming together of the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus offers this verse as a summary statement, as a cosmic picture of what has been happening throughout this book. I am making all things new. He's telling John, this is where things are headed. Cosmic renewal. All things being made new. And so this morning, we really just have two points. What does Jesus mean when he says all things? What's he talking about? And then our second point, what does he mean when he says he's making them new? Before we do that, before we get into discussing that, let's take a moment and pray. Fathers, we come to your word this morning as we come to this very simple but profound statement by your son. We ask for illumination from your spirit, that your spirit might point to us what this looks like in our lives today. 2,000 years after this was written and how many years we don't know before this comes to fruition, what does it mean for us this morning? Give us wisdom and eyes to see through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Brandon Sanderson 
is an author that I've been reading for the past four or five years. I am a, a sci-fi fantasy dork, so this is uh, he is a fantasy author. There's actually a number of you I know that read his work here because us dorks tend to find each other and discover uh, that we're reading many of the same things. But Brandon Sanderson has uh, a great book that's a single uh, story called Elantris. And the book Elantris is about a city called Elantris. And in this city, there are, uh, it's called the city of the gods because it's ruled by these people who are basically immortal. They have incredible strength and power and wisdom. They can wave their hand and heal people. They can provide food and healing and wisdom and magic for anyone who visits the city. The city itself is described as a place of, of power, of radiance, of beauty. The very stones of the city have an inner light to themselves. Uh, the city has all of this amazing art. There are sculptures and paintings and architecture. Uh, every single thing about this city is beautiful. But that's all background to the book because when the book begins, all that beauty has been lost. There's been a curse that's come to the city of Elantris. First, it cursed the people, these godlike immortal people. Their skin turned gray. Their hearts stopped beating. There's no blood in their veins, but they're somehow still alive. When they get injured, their injuries never heal. In fact, they never even stop hurting. And so even a, a small cut or a bruise or a scrape stays uh, forever unhealed and it leads to never-ending pain and sometimes even insanity for these people. The city has been left to rot because of this curse. It's become a, basically an expensive tomb for these former gods that are now described as sickly monstrosities. The, the city itself is covered in filth. Every surface from the walls to the buildings to the cracks in the cobblestones is covered with this disgusting grime. Rain doesn't wash it away. It's impossible to clean. And so everything in the city looks black and brown and green. It looks like sewage. And now there's no more art. And there's no more beauty. There's no more food or magic or healing in this city. There's nothing now but death and a shadow of what was there before. The reason this particular book and this illustration of this city stuck out to me is because it's a great example, it's a great illustration of what sin has done to Jesus's creation. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, when Jesus created everything, the Bible calls it good. And that's the same word that's translated other places as beautiful or priceless. In fact, Genesis 1 calls God's creation good seven times, which is the number the Bible often uses to communicate perfection and completeness. So Genesis wants us to understand that when God created, his creation was absolutely, completely, perfectly beautiful. Genesis wants us to see that everything, it says, from the heavens to the earth, from the stars to the oceans, from the plants to the animals, and finally God's greatest creation, people, humanity, his image bearers, 
were created beautiful and perfect. Just like the city of Elantris, God intends his creation to be this incredible home of beauty and healing and life flowing from his image bearers for them to rule over justly and rightly. But just like Elantris, a curse came. Sin enters the story in Genesis 3 and it completely destroys all of creation. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not familiar with the story of Christianity, maybe Christianity is new to you, first of all, thank you for joining us and kind of hearing what we have to say. But I have a feeling that maybe you've always thought of sin as only related to actions that people do, right? It was a way to categorize the good from the bad and the things that we do. But the Bible's picture of sin is so much more comprehensive than that. Sin is absolutely cosmic in the way that it curses creation. It affects every part of what God created beautifully, from the heavens to the earth, the way the Bible describes it. Later in the Bible, Romans 8, it tells us that the creation itself has been subjected to futility, that it's in bondage to corruption, that it's groaning in pain. These are all descriptions that help us to understand the cosmic curse that creation is under. And if we're being honest with ourselves, it's not actually hard to see that when we look at creation, right? Take the heavens. We look up and we see beautiful stars, but we know that they burn out. We know that they turn into black holes that suck everything into them, including light. The beauty of the stars also reveals that there are asteroids that fly through space and hit planets. The cold of space allows nothing to survive in it. Here on the earth, the beautiful earth that we have, there are natural disasters. There are storms that destroy. There are killer animals and there are poisonous plants. And then we see God's greatest creation, humans, God's image bearers. The Bible says that every part of his image bearers have been corrupted and cursed by sin. All the way from our bodies to our souls. And so we, as image bearers, instead of ruling over this beautiful creation, we destroy his creation. We kill one another. We have global pandemics. We suffer from loneliness and anxiety, depression, addiction, Sometimes we even kill ourselves in an attempt to escape that curse. I don't even need to ask you to reflect on the way that the curse has impacted you individually because something in that list that I just read hits home with you. This corruption is so all-encompassing that even the things we create to try to overcome it become corrupted. Just take one example, the internet. Right? The internet is probably the greatest technological creation in the history of mankind. It's been used for amazing things. It creates connections across the globe. It enables greater economy. It, it enables progress and prosperity. But it does not take us very long on the internet to see the damage that it does. 
the way that it's been exploited for the sex trade, for financial corruption, the way that social media is used to spread discord among people, even the way normal, everyday people speak to each other on the internet. Did you know that the pornography industry makes more money than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined? And that's been enabled and furthered because of the internet. So that's what we do to even our greatest creation. There's something wrong with everything in this world. Or as our verse describes it, there's something wrong with all things. That's the Bible's way of describing everything that God has created, all things. And all things have been terribly corrupted and cursed by sin. And so in Revelation, when Jesus says, I'm making all things new, I hope you're understanding why that's so important. Why that's such a significant verse to me. Why we so desperately need all things to be made new. Because something that I said this morning already isn't just words in a sermon to you. It hits home for you. You've experienced it. You've done it. It's been done to you. The curse of sin is the common human experience. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan calls it the burden that we bear. Anselm of Canterbury called it the great weight on us. Cornelius Plantinga called it pollution. C.S. Lewis called it the fountain that flows on to the end of time. Every writer, thinker, philosophy, every person ever has wrestled with the curse in creation and inside of themselves. Even if they call it by different names. So what are we left with? All things are corrupted by sin. They're cursed by sin. So what hope is there? for us well Jesus offers that in this promise to make all things new in Romans chapter 5 Paul spends several verses talking about this idea in verse 12 of chapter 5 he says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sin this is what we've been talking about the way in which the curse entered the world like a virus. It spread from this one man to all of creation. But then Paul begins to talk about Jesus. In verse 15 and 17, he says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus abounded for many. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the undoing of the curse. He calls the abundance of grace through Jesus the antidote to the curse. Many of you know the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. One verse that often gets skipped, the third verse, says that one day when Jesus returns, 
sin and sorrow will be no more, will grow no more. Thorns will no longer infest the ground, but instead his blessings will flow. Where? As far as the curse is found. Everywhere that sin did its cursing work, grace does its healing work. Now I want to reflect on that idea for a few minutes because grace undoing the work of the curse leaves me with some questions. The first of those is, why did Jesus decide to make things new instead of make new things? Does that question make sense? Right? Well, your house gets damaged. Do you use the insurance money to restore your house or to get a new one? Your car gets damaged. Do you use the insurance money to restore your car or to get a new one? We're faced with those kind of choices, these smaller versions usually, every day. Do we make things new? Do we restore them or do we make new things? Jesus could have just decided to start over. He could have wiped out what was cursed. And he could have made new things. He could have made a brand new creation, one that was no longer cursed. So why doesn't he? Well, if you look throughout the biblical story, it's because Jesus' heart is a heart of restoration and renewal. Going all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 3, in the middle of God, promising that there's going to be this curse because of sin. There's also a promise. A promise of a child who's going to eventually crush the head of the snake and undo the curse. In Genesis 10, a few chapters later, God establishes a covenant with Noah. And he promises to never again destroy his creation with a flood. Abraham follows God's covenant call because we're told in Hebrews that he was looking forward to a restored city of God. Ezekiel chapter 36, God promises to give his people a new heart, but they're not different hearts. They're transformed hearts. They're hearts that become hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. In Isaiah 43, God promises, he says, I'm going to do something new. There's a desert and he places a stream in the desert and it restores the desert to the way that it's supposed to be. Wild animals are no longer wild. They honor God. People are no longer thirsty. They have water from this stream. Over and over again in the Old Testament, these promises pointed forward to a new country, a new city, a new restored creation. Then in the New Testament, Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins his ministry. We've talked about this before, but the Apostle John, or sorry, John the Baptist, isn't sure if Jesus really is the promised Messiah. Is he the one that's going to undo the curse? And so he sends messengers to ask. And Jesus responds in Luke chapter 7 with this statement. Tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He's saying, you want to know if I'm the one that God promised to send? If I'm the one that's going to undo the curse, look at the work that I'm doing. I'm doing restoration. I'm taking what was cursed and I'm healing it. I'm making all things new. So when we ask the question, do all things need restoration? 
we look at Jesus's life and we say he healed physical, emotional, and spiritual curses. You know, a lot of Christians only think in terms of Jesus's work as being spiritual, just making our hearts new. We think only about spiritual healing that Jesus offers, but his whole ministry was radical restoration of every part of creation. He told his disciples that he had food they didn't know about, spiritual food of doing his father's work, but he also made real food from nothing to satisfy real hunger. He tells a woman at the well that he offers a greater spiritual water for her spiritual thirst, but he also turned water into wine for thirsty people at a wedding. He casts out a storm of demons inside of this man that he doesn't know, but he also calmed a literal storm that his disciples were experiencing. He looked at his friend Lazarus, and he said, get up out of the tomb. But he also wept for Lazarus in his death. He heals spiritually and physically and emotionally because he's making all things new. That leads me to my second question. So, yes, the Bible is, store, is full of these stories of, of Jesus making all things new 2,000 years ago. But is his grace still at work today? We already talked about how easy it is for us to look at the world, to see the curse in the world today, outside of us and inside of us. People I know still get sick. People still die. Storms still wreck cities and flood basements and kill people. There are still wars and rumors of wars. So that makes it easy for me to doubt whether the grace of Jesus is still active in the world today. Maybe he just pressed pause on it when he ascended to heaven and he's going to finish it one day when he comes back. You feel that way sometimes? At night when you're lying in bed and that thing feels unredeemable, whatever that thing is for you right now, is that thing really going to be made new today in my life? I want you to hear this morning that the answer to that is yes. He really is making all things new right now. Countless people in here could share stories about the restoration that Jesus is doing and has done in their lives. That's why we named the church that. We have these stories sometimes where we invite people up to share about these testimonies of God's work, and we do that to remind us that, yes, God is at work making all things new today. He's given the Holy Spirit to us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk about that in a series next spring. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are being made new in you. When you fail at them, Jesus offers grace and repentance and forgiveness. You can confess, you can be honest in this community about the sin in your life. That's a restorative power. If you've never experienced that, come be around some of the people here and let them live that out with you. You'll see that Jesus really is making all things new right now, today. Jesus takes 
these new restored hearts that he gives us. And he, he then overflows them with grace that flow into the world around us. That's happening in St. Louis today. What would St. Louis look like without loaves and fishes, without first light, without restore St. Louis, without redeemed, renewed Christian hearts doing redeemed, renewed work in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces? What would St. Louis look like without Christians and without churches? See, Jesus really is making things new now. But because the curse is so pervasive, because it's so powerful, you have to look at the small things to begin to see Jesus at work. Right? We're reading the Bible reading plan right now through the Gospels. How many times does Jesus in the Gospels describe his work as small, as something difficult to see, as something hard to identify? He begins that work but it's growing and it's growing. He's done that work in your heart. That's where he started, in each one of us, redeeming us, making us new. So if you're a Christian this morning, where is he making you new? Where do you need to look for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and the things that God might be calling you to bring restoration to? How is that grace overflowing from your heart where are the places that he wants to make new through the work he's doing in you your friends or your families or your neighbors or co-workers maybe you hear that question and you say I have no idea how to do that I have no idea where God wants me to come into his restoration work well come find one of the staff part of our job is to come alongside of the work the Holy Spirit's doing in your life and help equip you for that work. That's what we're here for. It's to see you go out and live out the grace of God flowing from your heart into this world. As I said earlier, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. I hope you've been challenged to think of the way in which God might invite you into that work. How can you be part of this restoration that's happening in the world? Well, it begins by allowing Jesus to do that work in your heart. Would you allow him to make all things new, including you? As we end, I want to comment on one final question that I have about Jesus making all things new. Maybe you've thought about it as I've been talking this morning. We've seen the way that Jesus did his ministry in his life. I understand that he's at work and making all things new now in my world through me. But what about all the things that have already happened? What about all the damage that the curse has already caused in my life? Maybe because of me, maybe in me, maybe to me. If you're like me, there's a lot of hurt in my past. What about those things? Do those things get included in all things being made new? Maybe there's one specific thing you're thinking about. How is Jesus going to make that new? Well, let me end with a mysterious but hopefully helpful thought from C.S. Lewis. 
He wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in that, he talks about our journey towards either heaven or hell. And this is how he answers the question of all things being made new. You cannot, in your present state, understand eternity. But you can get some likeness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they're fully grown, become retrospective. All the earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. And not only the twilight, but all their life on earth will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That's what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this one thing and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate even the pleasure of that sin. Both these processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and his remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises on the new earth, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. For those of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, this is your experience in life. Haven't you already seen that even some of the painful things in your past have begun to be restored and made new by Jesus? Would you trust him with all the pains and curses in your past and in your present and in your future? Trust him to make all things new for you. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the table in just a moment. Help us to be reminded that this table points us back to that moment of restoration, to that work on the cross that 2,000 years ago still overflows in our hearts and lives with grace, even when we experience the curse of this world that there is still grace overflowing. Remind us that as we come to the table, as we take your body and your blood, as we take it together and celebrate and remind ourselves of your death, let us be reminded that you are making all things new right now today. In your name we pray. Amen.